When I was growing up, my family did not have a television. This was a uh, intentional decision on the part of my parents. Now, one of the effects that that had on me was that I kind of became somewhat obsessed with television. And uh, anytime I had a chance to watch something, I was very excited and willing to do so. I remember one year we were on furlough in the States. I think I was five. I may have been six. I don't remember exactly how old I was. We were at my grandmother's house. We were staying there and she had a TV, which I was never allowed to turn on. But my parents informed me one day that we were going to be watching something on TV all together as a family for several evenings that week. And I was really excited. Wow, I get to not only stay up late, but I get to watch something on TV. It was a Billy Graham crusade. <laughs> now, I don't know why you're laughing. I mean, isn't that a good thing? Isn't that a positive thing, a joyful thing to watch? Now, of course, as a five-year-old, it wasn't what I had hoped, perhaps, that uh, at least it didn't have the same entertainment value, maybe, that I was hoping for. But I remember as a child being impressed with the number of people that were listening to this man talk about Jesus. I don't remember the venue. I don't know where it was. Uh, but it was packed. It was a huge stadium. Each night I fell asleep before the end, but sometimes I woke up at the end and saw all these people, you know, streaming down to the front after Dr. Billy Graham had given his invitation. I remember imagining my dad preaching in a context like that, Pastor Bill. I remember imagining myself preaching in a context like that. Here I am. Um, but from that time on, that was my first encounter really with Billy Graham, who he was. And from then on, every time that I saw Billy Graham on TV or imagined him, it was always in the context of huge numbers of people. And something I never saw, now I'm not saying that he never did this, but something I never saw was Billy Graham sharing the gospel with just one person in the context of a conversation one-on-one. -on -one. Again, I'm not saying he never did that. I'm just saying that was never something that's put on the media. That's never something that was shown or advertised. You know what Luke does in the second half of chapter eight of Acts? He writes exactly about what I never saw Billy Graham do. Philip has had this amazing ministry in Samaria. He has preached to hundreds, if not thousands of people, and his message has been remarkably well-received. People are turning to Jesus in great numbers, and Philip's been blessed by the Holy Spirit to perform signs and wonders. People are amazed, and it's, it's like this mass revival, people coming to Jesus in an area in a region that was not Jewish. Remember, we've, we've talked about the expansion of the gospel in Jerusalem, and now we're in Samaria and Judea, soon to be heading toward the ends of the earth. But in the context of this, you know, preaching to thousands, then Luke switches something on us, and he shows us Philip talking to an individual. From public evangelism to personal evangelism. And friends, this is what makes this passage 
personal to all of us because few of us, if any, will ever preach to thousands. I don't know, there may be someone in here, God may have that in your future, but all of us can and should share with one, well, or one at a time. I'm not limiting us to one. And this is actually a great gift that God gives us through Luke. To have this insight into Philip, this incredible man of God, this one of the seven chosen for being full of the Holy Spirit. We've already seen that God has blessed him as an evangelist. And then Luke's going to say, hey, come with me while we watch Philip do something that every believer is called to do. And watch him talk about Jesus to just one person. I'll be reading this passage. It's usually referred to as the story of Philip and the Ethiopian from Acts chapter 8, beginning with verse 26. And after I read it, what I want to do is draw out seven principles for personal evangelism. Seven principles for personal witness that we can draw from this passage. Now, I also want to be clear with this. I don't think Luke wrote this passage to be a template for how we always have to do personal evangelism. He wasn't saying, this is how you always have to talk about Jesus. But what he is giving us is a picture. This is the way that it did, was done once. And it was done by a man for whom the church has high regard for his character and his ministry. So what can we learn? What are the principles that we can draw out from Philip's interaction with the Ethiopian? Those are what we want to look at today. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stand near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. <clears throat> um, do, you, do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? himself or someone else. Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. 
The first principle about personal evangelism that I would like us to see is one that's been emphasized from the very first chapter of Acts. So it's not new, but because Luke emphasizes it, I'm going to emphasize it and bring it up once again. Here it is. Number one, the power of witness is the Holy Spirit. The power of witness is the Holy Spirit. In this account, we see the Holy Spirit acting on both sides. He guides and motivates the witnesser, right? He's the one that impels Philip to the right place at the right time. And on the other hand, he has been working, preparing the heart and the mind of the Ethiopian to receive what Philip has to say. We don't know too much about this Ethiopian, but he must have been a God-fearer at the very least because he had been in Jerusalem to worship and now he's on his way home to what would have been known as Cush in biblical era. That would be southern Egypt or northern Sudan, that region there in North Africa. But what I want us to note is how the Holy Spirit is active on both sides, in the witnesser and also preparing the ground in the witnessee, the one to whom Philip is going to witness. And it's very important for us as we listen to, hear, and choose to follow God's call to be his witnesses, that we are aware of and acknowledge the source of the power for witness. If we're doing it under our own, if, if we're just trying to check off a list of responsibility, then without acknowledging that the one who empowers witness is the Holy Spirit, we're gonna be ineffective. I'm sure you've all had a moment of turning on some electrical appliance and finding that it doesn't work. And it's either because it had come unplugged or because the batteries were dead. Either way, the source of, it was disconnected from the source of power. And if we are disconnected from the Holy Spirit and him as the source of power for witness, we will be ineffective. At the same time, this means we can rest in the power of the Spirit. I think there's a lot of fear in us about speaking the gospel, about talking with other people about Jesus. We're afraid that we won't have the right words. We're afraid we won't be able to answer the questions. We're afraid we'll make a mistake. We're afraid of being embarrassed. We're afraid of being judged. We're afraid of being ostracized. But if we can remember that the responsibility of witness for the result of witness lies entirely with the power of the Holy Spirit, then we can rest in that. And that will free us for the second principle, which is our responsibility. Our responsibility in witness is obedience. Philip is given in specific instructions from God twice in this account. First, he's told to go to a specific road, the southern road, the desert road leading from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then after he arrives there and he sees the Ethiopian from a distance, the Holy Spirit tells him to go near to the Ethiopian. It's worth noting that Philip's obedience creates the opportunity. Philip's obedience creates the opportunity because it's only when he obeys and draws near that he hears what the Ethiopian is reading. And that text from Isaiah gives Philip the opening to talk about Jesus. 
If Philip had stayed at a distance and just watched the Ethiopian, the opportunity would never have materialized. And so for us, I think we pray sometimes, God, we kind of pray it a little bit afraid. God, please make me a better witness. It's okay if you don't, but please make me a better witness. Give me an opportunity. Give me more opportunities to witness. Maybe you prayed that. And if you give me, God, if you give me opportunities, then then I'll do it. Maybe God is challenging us, challenging you, challenging me, by saying, if you obey, if you start the process, if you take the step, I will provide the opportunity. One way I like to imagine this is with those uh, electronic sensor doors at malls or airports or some stores. They only activate when you get closer, when you get within the range of that sensor. So if I stand far back, I look at the door and I say, the door's closed. You've heard me use this example before, right? The door's closed. Why should I even approach? Because it's closed. But if the Holy Spirit, if the God is saying to us, go, then we go even if it doesn't appear to us as though it's going to be successful. But as one goes, it's when we arrive at the doors or near the doors that they open. And in a sense, we see this this example with Philip. It's when he obeys, once he arrives near the Ethiopian in obedience, God provides the opening, or at least when he sees the opening. Now, before we move on to our third principle, I want to just talk about barriers to obedience real quickly. Because generally speaking, obedience is not something that any of us just loves and embraces. It's not, obedience is not something that a sinful, broken human nature will readily submit to. And even more so, kids, well, all of us have been kids at some point. Most of us have probably heard at some point, directed to us, when we ask why, mom or dad or someone else in authority says, you need to do this, and we say why, and that answer that we all love, it's such a wonderful answer, because I said so. You know, just do it, because I'm the authority, so do it, right? None of us likes that answer. None of us appreciate, uh, in our fallen state, None of us appreciates obedience. So there are many barriers. And just in this passage, I want to to, to throw out a few that might have arisen for Philip. One is, is human logic. Because sometimes what God calls us to do does not make sense from a human perspective. Philip is having this incredible response in Samaria. Talk about fruit. It's like falling off the trees. And then God tells him, hey, I want you to go off into the desert, away from here. Now, from a human perspective, if I were Philip, I'm saying, God, that is terrible strategy. That is not, look at, look at what's happening here. Look at the fruit. Look at the multiplication. These people love me. They love your message. They're coming to you. Why would I go in the opposite direction, away from here, back through Judea, down to the desert where it's 
where there's nobody. So we need to be careful that when God tells us, when the word of God commands obedience, when he has communicated that to us, that we don't allow human arguments or logic to keep us from obedience. Maybe that would be in the context of God impressing upon us to go talk to a specific person about Jesus. And we say, well, that person would never be open. Or I know that person's an atheist. They don't have any desire to talk about Jesus. Um, From a human perspective, it doesn't make sense. But our responsibility in witness is obedience. Another barrier might have just been pure laziness. Uh, You know, Philip could have said, okay, he could have pulled out his ancient Near Eastern map and said, okay, you want me to go from Jerusalem, the desert road down to Gaza? You want me to go southeast? Hey, uh, God, if you just send me straight east, I'll go to the beach. Straight west. I'm confused. Straight west. Just send me straight west. Instead of southwest, send me straight west and I'll end up at the beach. The beach is a much better place than the desert. And they both have sand, God, right? So, I mean, you know, kind of going in the right direction. Maybe it's laziness. Maybe we just simply do not want to do what God has called us to do. Here's a third barrier. Plain old awkwardness or a fear of being mocked or a fear of other people thinking that we're weird. Because think about it. If if we take the text at its face value, here we have Philip who has been walking down this desert road and he sees this Ethiopian from a distance. Now, even from a distance, several things would have been very clear to Philip. The first thing is, that guy is a foreigner. So that could be a barrier right there. An argument would be easy to say, he won't even understand me, I won't understand him. He's clearly from a different country, a different region. Secondly, the next thing that would have become clear is, we, between meaning Philip and the Ethiopian, we are in two completely different economic realities. In the day, anyone who had a chariot was very, very wealthy and powerful. Chariots were not something that the common people had. So simply the fact that this man was in a chariot all automatically put him at an economic and power level above Philip. And thirdly, as Philip arrived a little closer to him, simply the fact that this man had his own scroll meant he was extremely wealthy. There was no ancient Near Eastern Sadaiva where you could just run and buy a, well, actually, there's no contemporary modern Sadaiva anymore either, but you can't just go to a bookshelf and pull off a book. You can't go to a little corner bookstore and buy a book. It wasn't accessible. They didn't exist. They were very rare and very valuable. So there, are, there is a lot that distances the Ethiopian from Philip. And then the Holy Spirit tells him to do something which I still think is really awkward. Just go stand near him. Isn't that weird? I think it's weird. And the text says that Philip ran up. And I'm trying to picture this. Picture it. You know, you're in the desert. Here's the Ethiopian with his entourage in his chariot. He's reading this scroll. And then this, I mean, I don't know what Philip looked like, but, you know, he's probably wearing robes and he wasn't super wealthy. He sprints across the the sand and it's kind of like, I and mean, that's how I imagine it, right? And the Ethiopian's here in the, and he's reading from Isaiah. Just go there and be near him. I don't want to do that. I don't want, try that. Well, don't. 
just on the street sometime. Go stand near to a stranger, you know, uncomfortably close to a stranger. It's weird. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. Philip does it. He obeys. And that opens up the door for his witness. So let us not keep fear. Let us not keep our, our own ideas of what's more strategic to keep us from obeying God and witness. The third principle has to do with the target of witness. Who is the target audience for the gospel? Well, from our human perspective, since we do not see the heart and we don't know the heart of each individual, we don't know who the elect are or who are not. That is something only God knows. So our target, from our experience, our perspective, it's everyone and anyone. And I'll go a little, a step further to say, perhaps even those who might seem the least likely. In the case of the Ethiopian, he was very unlikely. For the reasons I've already explained, wealth, the, the, the foreign nature, and his, the power difference between he and Philip. But there's one that's actually even more profound. This man's a eunuch. And... In the Mosaic Law, Deuteronomy 23, 1, God, through Moses, gives his people a specific statement that no one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. So, according to the law, Jewish law, this man... You know, and, and you can imagine, I don't know if Philip knew he was a eunuch, but the thought process that might have been going through Philip's mind might have been, but wait, why would I go to this man? Because he's excluded from much of Jewish worship because of what's been done to him. Just as a side note, I think that this verse, um, this command in Deuteronomy 23 was given less to exclude people and more as a way of telling the Israelites, this practice, which was common in the nations surrounding them, this practice of emasculation, uh, don't you do that. This is not to become part of your Jewish practice or culture um, because those to whom that is done will be excluded from the assembly of the Lord. So from a human perspective, this guy, this Ethiopian, seems like the least likely to ever respond to the gospel. And what we see here again is God saying, God beginning to show to his church, the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for anyone who will come in repentance and faith to the feet of Jesus. We should never discount someone because, oh, they wouldn't be interested or they would never surrender to Jesus or they would never be willing to come to Jesus if it meant changing their lifestyle or changing the way they live. They would never be willing to do that. We should never be the ones to put those limitations. Everyone is our target, even those who may seem to us to be the least likely to respond to the gospel because the gospel embraces anyone and everyone who comes and repentance and faith in Jesus. And we do not know who that will be or who that won't be. 
The fourth principle is actually a strategy. It's a strategy, it's not the strategy. It's, it's a minor point, but I think it's worth noting. A strategy of witness is questioning. Asking questions. Drawing the people out. See, sometimes we are given the opportunity to build a relationship with people to whom we witness over the course of weeks or months or even years. It's an ongoing relationship. But other times, as with Philip in this case, we have a brief one opportunity window. Philip didn't start right away by preaching. He didn't run up to the chariot and say, let me tell you the good news about Jesus. He went up, he notes, he understands where this person is, where the Ethiopian is, what he's reading, and then he asks him a question. Do you understand what you're reading? He's drawing him out. He's trying to find common ground. He's looking for an invitation, which is exactly what he gets. The Ethiopian says, how can I understand it unless someone explains it to me? And Philip says, I just so happen to be here. Let me explain it. And that question opens up everything that follows. When we ask questions of a person to whom we, are, we want to share Jesus, it shows an interest in them and it helps establish some common ground. It gives us also some context for what the person may think or may already know. Let me give you an example of a, a question that I use often here in Brazil. And I'll tell you what, every time I've used the question, I have never been ignored, I've never been shot down, and I've never not received a response. It's not usually, it, it's a question that I ask usually after we've exchanged a few phrases already. You have to look for the right opening, but here, here's the question. Are you of any particular faith? Or do you have any particular faith that you call your own? That's opened the doors for some very interesting conversations. Um, for example, here, here in Brazil, all of you know this, how often, just in regular conversations, does the word and the name of God come up constantly? You know, I see Deus quiser. You know, most people who say that aren't really meaning what they say, it's just an expression. But if I'm in this short conversation with someone and they say that, I say, ah, you, you spoke about God. Do you have a particular faith? Um, it's interesting to see where that goes. Or God bless. Or someone uses the word amen. Oh, that's an opportunity right there. Amen. Well, are, are you of any particular faith? Anyway, this is just an, an example. It's one question that you can use that might open a door for further interaction about something that's a little bit more meaningful or perhaps a lot more meaningful. But as with Philip, one strategy of personal evangelism, at least to get going, is to start with some questions. The fifth principle has to do with the foundation of witness. And here it is. The foundation of witness is scripture. Everything that Philip shares with the Ethiopian is based upon the word of God. Verse 35 here in Acts chapter 8 says that Philip begins with that very passage of scripture that the Ethiopian was reading and he begins with that passage and he tells him the good news about Jesus. There are two implications 
of, of this um, for us today. The first is a, seems very simple and very basic, but it's no less essential. We need to know Scripture. Philip was able to use this passage from Isaiah because he knew it. He understood it. He knew its context. And he knew how to apply it. And he understood how it addressed and pointed to Jesus. If you desire to be a more effective witness, one practical step that you can take is recommit yourself to the word of God, to reading it, studying it, memorizing it, knowing it. I'm guessing that for many of us, when God gives us these opportunities and we take them, as, as we leave and go on about our lives, there's something that we wish we had done better. There was some question, oh, they had that question, I wish I had had a better answer. Or in retrospect, I wish I had said this. The more that we can fill ourselves, our minds, our souls, our hearts with the word of God, the more readily those answers will come. Um, imagine a student the night before a test who prays and says, God, I don't want to do, I don't want to take this test under my own power. So I'm not going to study. I'm not going to go over the material. I'm just going to trust you tomorrow to give me the right answers. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> I would love that. I mean, you can do that, right? You're free to do that. You have the freedom. Guess what? You won't know the answers. Now, contrast that to the student that says the praise the night before a test. God, I really need your help on this test. So I am going to do everything in my power to study and review and know the material. And then tomorrow, would you please bring the things I've studied back to my mind when I take the test so that I'll remember them. When the scripture is in us, when the word of God inhabits us, then the Holy Spirit in those moments can bring that to our conscious memory. And we have it right there in our minds, our hearts, on the tip of our tongues. So the first point is to know scripture. Here's the second point. Use it. Use it. We're often deceived by the thought, you know, this person I'm talking to, they don't believe the Bible. So I shouldn't use the Bible. I shouldn't use scripture. I shouldn't quote it. I shouldn't refer to it when I'm talking to them about Jesus because they don't believe it. But their belief or not doesn't make the scripture untrue. It's still the truth. And if we're sharing the gospel, how do we divorce the gospel from the word of God? How do we know who Jesus is and what he's done? It's through the word of God. So how do we tell someone about it? How do we discuss matters of eternal importance without using scripture? Because the word of God describes itself as being true, active, and powerful. Right, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates. It gets to the heart of the matter. And while we should use it wisely, we also should not fear to use it. We don't just 
quote verses randomly at awkward, inappropriate times. But we must not fear to use it because it is the truth of God. And many of you are familiar with Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, where God, through the prophet, says that when his word goes out, it will never return empty or it will never return void. And he, he explains what he means by that. When my word goes out, it will always accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. We don't always know what that purpose is when God sends his word out. We don't always know what that purpose is, but we can be part of that sending, part of the word of God going forth. And God promises when his word goes out, it will always accomplish his purposes, whatever those may be. So scripture is the foundation for witness. Know it, use it. The sixth principle is that the theme of witness is Christ. If scripture is the foundation, the theme, the core is Jesus. As soon as the Ethiopian gives Philip an opening for conversation, Philip is talking about Jesus, right? He uses that very passage to tell him the good news about Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. His being, his identity, his work, they are the theme, the meaning, the hope. And in the context of witness, we must turn the conversation eventually to Christ. Who he is, what he has done, what he offers, and the implications of that for a sinful, broken world. Many people feel relatively comfortable in having a conversation about God. Fewer people feel comfortable about a conversation with Jesus. And for that reason, we, we sometimes back off. And so in, in our desire, in wanting to share the gospel, we end up kind of talking around the periphery of Jesus. We're talking about things that, that aren't the center they're related, they're important. We're talking about God, we're maybe talking about God's will, but we hesitate to go to the heart of the matter. Who is Jesus Christ? Imagine that you need to learn to drive, you need to get your driver's license so you register with an alto escola, with a driving school. You pay your money, and you begin the course, and you go through the whole course, and they teach you a lot of things and they talk a lot about driving, but they never put you behind the wheel of a car and never teach you to drive. So they teach you to watch the car, they teach you to wax the car, they may even teach you to change the oil in the car, they teach you to check the tire pressure, um, they, uh, you study all the laws about driving, all the guidelines for, for the city of Sao Paulo and for the country of Brazil, and then they take you for the practical test but you've never driven a car. Guess what, you're gonna fail. So those other things are important, but they're only important as they relate to the core. They're only important as they relate to the theme, which is driving itself. If you're not gonna drive the car, why do you need to know all the laws about driving? And if, if an auto escola is not going to teach you to actually drive, you should go to a different auto escola. 
In the same way, if we're witnessing, if we're in the context of a conversation or sharing the truth of Jesus with somebody else, it's the truth of Jesus. He is the core. We must share him. The seventh and final principle, we're almost done, has to do with the goal of witness. What is the goal of witness? And I would suggest that the goal is a decision. By the end of Philip's conversation with the Ethiopian, he has made a decision. He has chosen faith in Christ and he has chosen the obedience of baptism. And while we don't know everything that Philip said to him, at the very least it's clear that he implied that the gospel required a response. In our witnessing, in our evangelism, we need to keep moving toward a decision toward a response. The gospel necessitates it. Our goal is not just dialogue. Dialogue is good, but it's a means to an end. And we want to be leading people, drawing people over the course of our relationship and dialogue with them toward a decision. It's dialogue with a direction. It doesn't mean that we, from the very beginning, are pressuring people to pray a prayer or we're pressuring people to make a statement of faith. But it does mean we keep in mind that a response to the gospel involves a surrender in the will. It requires a choice to turn from the world and turn to Jesus. And the ultimate question has to be, what will you do with Jesus Christ? What will you do with Jesus Christ? So, as we bring this to a close in order to, to apply what we've, been, what we've been talking about, there, there are three takeaways, I suppose, that I would like you to, to consider. The first is a challenge. I want us to be challenged and astonished by one fact, that we have no idea how far-reaching the fruit of a single encounter that we have may be. Even just a couple phrases exchanged in a passing conversation, you and I, we have no idea the impact that that could have for eternity. According to the, the historian Irenaeus, this Ethiopian eunuch became the first missionary to Africa. So think about this geographically for a moment. Here's Jerusalem. Philip has gone out of Jerusalem north through Judea and into Samaria. So we see the word of God spreading north. And then God says, hey, Philip, I'm gonna do an aside here. I'm gonna take you down um, southwest and you're going to meet somebody and you're going to talk to that person about Jesus and he is going to take my gospel south into Africa. The first touch of the gospel into that continent. And Philip had what? Maybe a few hours with the Ethiopian. We don't know for sure how long he was with him. And then God teleported him, right? That must have been an odd experience for Philip. Hey, I'm in the desert talking to an Ethiopian. Whoa, now I'm an Azotus. Okay. And the Ethiopian, I'm sure it was a little bit of a shock for him too. 
First, this guy just sprints up to him in the desert, answers all his questions, tells him about Jesus, baptizes him, and disappears. But consider the impact of that one encounter. And Cush, the region from which this Ethiopian came, in the context of, of Jewish ancient Near East, that was the end of the earth. So we see how God's gospel, Jer Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And in at least southward from one short interaction with one person. So now you kind of look at, at Philip's incredible ministry in Samaria where thousands of people are coming to Christ and you're saying, well, you know, why would God take him away from that to just talk to one person? Well, consider who that one person ends up being. We have no idea how many souls are part of the kingdom of God today because of this man. So we trace the spread of the gospel north from Jerusalem to Samaria, now south into Africa on its way to the ends of the earth. So you don't know how significant even one single moment of obedience and witness may end up being. The second takeaway is I want to provide some comfort. You know what? If, if you are committed to being a witness for Christ, you are going to make mistakes. You are going to get it wrong. There are going to be times where you don't have the right answer. There are going to be times where you don't respond in the best way you possibly could. And while we never want to make mistakes on purpose, the mercy and grace of God cover us, especially when we are walking in obedience. Remember what Psalm 103 says? The psalmist says, God remembers that we are made of dust. He knows where we came from. He knows we are not divine in the sense that he is. We are fallible. Why do I say this from this passage? What, what happened at the beginning of chapter eight? Remember Simon, the sorcerer? So do a quick contrast. Simon the sorcerer, Ethiopian eunuch, both evangelized by Philip, both baptized by Philip. Over here, it seems like Philip kind of got it wrong. You know, he, may, he baptized someone that wasn't a true believer as far as we can tell. And on the other hand, we see the effect of God's word and Philip's ministry on the Ethiopian eunuch. And I just say, Lord, thank you for showing me that even someone like Philip you know, didn't get it right all the time. And that's a blessing. Thirdly and finally, don't be discouraged by resistance. We're going to encounter resistance to the gospel. You will, you will have conversations and, and you leave and you think, well, that was totally pointless. That was a waste of 10 minutes or five minutes or half an hour or an hour or whatever it may be. You know, I didn't see any evidence that that person is remotely interested in Jesus. But you don't know where you fall on the timeline and the continuum. Uh, Ajith Fernando uh, wrote a commentary on the book of Acts and I've referred to him a number of times before. You've heard me uh, quote him, but he tells a story that was told to him uh, of a person, a man who had a ministry in uh, prisons. He would go into prisons. This was in the, in the U.S. He would go into prisons and just look for opportunities to talk to the inmates about Jesus. In this one particular prison, there was one inmate that was considered the worst, the most horrible, the one who um, was, he was foul, he was bitter, he was angry, he was violent. But 
this man went into that prison. He shared the gospel with that inmate, the one that was considered the worst of all, and that man turned to Jesus. He repented of his sins, and he accepted Christ. He acknowledged Christ as his savior. And uh, as the story is told, the, the, this man led this inmate in his first prayer ever. Just a prayer of acknowledging that he believed in Jesus and that he was repentant. And he said the man finished the prayer and he turned and looked at the guy who had just led him to Jesus and said, hey, I don't want you to get the big head because you were the one that led me to Jesus. Don't get prideful about that because you were only number 26. And he said, the man turned to him and he said, number 26, what do you mean? He said, I can count. There were 25 people before you that talked to me about Jesus. And each time I said no, but each time I can tell now that God was chipping away a little bit at my heart each time. So you're just number 26. So the point is, brothers and sisters, we don't know when we might be 26 and we don't know when we might be one or two or three or four. So let's not become discouraged by resistance because even when people are resistant, we don't know how the Lord is using, how the Holy Spirit is using us to bring about transformation and hope and joy and new life.